1843, Charles Dickens published his book, A Christmas Carol. And uh, over the next several weeks, we're actually going to be looking at why that book has had such resonance for almost 200 years now. And we're going to be comparing it to why it is that we actually celebrate Christmas. And so I'm really excited that uh, you've decided to join us today. And for the next couple of weeks, hope that you'll come back and make every effort you can to be here. Uh, we are going to be looking at some spoilers uh, in A Christmas Carol, so we're going to be kind of telling the story over the next few weeks, uh, which means if you haven't read it yet, uh, this would be a great week to do it. Um, and if you get upset with us for spoilers, I mean, you've had 180 years to read it. So I'm, I'm sorry that you, 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 know, you, you haven't gotten the story yet, but hopefully most of you are fairly familiar with it. It's been told lots and lots of times, and, uh, and it's been told in different ways. So sometimes the, the ghost of Marley, who is Scrooge's business partner, that's kind of the setup. Scrooge is an old man who has become just, um, just quite consumed with greed and money and finances, and really he can't hardly be helpful to anybody else because of that consumption. And his old business partner, Marley, who similarly was consumed with greed, appears to him and tells him like, look, you're, you're, you're heading in a wrong direction. That's what got me to this place. That's why I have to wear these chains. And three spirits are going to visit you and they're going to help you see uh, the world in a new way so that maybe you can change. It's not too late for you, by the way. And so it's a very spooky scene, honestly. Like even if you're reading in the book, it's very creepy. Now, uh, oftentimes Marley is portrayed, right, as a, as a ghost with chains and he's portrayed very dramatically and many of the stage plays that we see like that. And so uh, he, he looks oftentimes kind of like this. Or sometimes if you see like Mickey's Christmas Carol, you know, he's, he's goofy. So it just depends on which one you watch. Um, uh, Staten and Waldorf did him for, for, for the Muppets. And so uh, th- there's different versions, obviously, of the Marley character or characters. But why is it that this story continues to resonate with us so long after it was written? And, and I think that essentially the, the, the bottom line is that we recognize what's true about this story, which is simply that we are all hunting by the ghosts of our past. Every single one of us, something we did, something we said, a relationship that couldn't hold together. Maybe it was romantic. Maybe it was friend. Maybe it was a family member. But but there are these things that we did or that we were part of or decisions that we made that it feels like it doesn't take much to remind us and to send us back to that place. And it dredges all that old history up for us once again. And it feels in some ways like it's a chain wrapped around us, like we can't quite get away from it. You're with a friend who you went to college with and they say something about, oh, remember that time in college that we did blah, blah, blah. And they're talking about a great, fun, fond memory. But as soon as they say college, you think about the incident in college that has negatively impacted you ever since. The thing that you did or the misstep that you made back then that you still quite can't quite let go of. And you try to stay there for the conversation and they don't know that that's where your mind went. Or sometimes you just walk into a place and there's a, there's a smell about it or, or that reminds you of, of something that happened or something you did or something you wish you could have back or have a, have a do-over. Like we are all haunted by ghosts of our past. And so I think when we read the story of Scrooge and he is quite literally haunted by these ghosts of past, present, and future, there's something about us that says like, oh man, like I, I kind of know what that is like. So I, I, today we're gonna look in the book of John in chapter four. If you have your Bible with you, if you'd like to follow along with us, you're welcome to. We're gonna have it up here on our screens as well, John chapter four. And uh, we're only gonna look at one story today and it's quite in depth. So we'll get to like learn all kinds of things. There is a woman who we're going to read by, uh, about who is haunted by her past. And it's not evident, it's not obvious right away that that's what's going on with her, but we start to see it as the conversation between her and Jesus unfolds. And so John uh, chapter four, and we'll start uh, in verse number four, and this is what we'll read there. So the first line says, now he, speaking of Jesus, had to go through Samaria. What's fascinating about that line is 
It's not true, (laughs) or it's not true in the way that we would normally think that it is. Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria, at least from a geographical perspective. There were ways to go from where he was in Galilee to where he wanted to go down to Judah that he could have, he didn't have to go through Samaria, though Samaria was the most direct way there. We'll unpack a little bit more of that in a moment, but I just want to kind of like put a, 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 a thumbtack in it. All right, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of ground, Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Okay, so before we jump into uh, really the story today, there's a few things we need to unpack right away that that open up because like the setting here like is important. In all of our lives, right? We're having to learn about new terms, new words, new places, new things. Like that's just part of growing up. And so uh, part of what we need to do today is kind of jump into that together. I've got an eight-year-old, by the way, who is constantly having to learn new things. He's constantly getting them a little bit switched around. He's not quite sure of it. A few months ago, he was using the bathroom and he was taking a long time even for him. And so I just went and tapped on the bathroom door and I was like, Jack, are you okay? He said, yeah, dad, I, I think I'm pregnant. <laughs> and I said, do you mean constipated? Yeah, dad, I think I'm constipated. Okay. Cause those two things aren't the same. Finish doing what you need to do. And then we're going to have a conversation when you get out. Okay. So, so we're always learning new things from the time that we're kids to the time we're now. And honestly, if we, if we don't understand the setting, the background of this, and there's no real reason that that's something you should have in your head as we jump into that this morning, then, uh, we're going to miss a ton of what's happening here in this story. So I want to tell you a little bit about Samaria. So what part of the world are we in first might be helpful. I grew up, uh, going to an American school in Texas. And so I learned almost nothing about geography. I find that Americans know almost any, almost nothing about geography. When I talk to my friends who are from Canada, from Europe, or wherever, uh, they always laugh at me at how little I know about where things are. So in case you are like me, not all of you are probably, but some of you are, maybe helpful to know where in the world this was actually happening. So uh, Jerusalem... Uh, is, is on the map over here. You can kind of see it. I've got circled in red. I'm trying to be as helpful as I can possibly be. And then this is, this is just the modern world today, right? It's Europe. It's Africa. Asia would be over farther east. And so this is where the story is taking place approximately. Uh, but Jerusalem is in Judah. And at the, at, at the time that Jesus was around, uh, the Israelites actually had, had had a divided kingdom for a really long time. In about 930 BC, Solomon, the son of King David, passed away. And after he died, the kingdom of Israel was split up into two different kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel in the north, the kingdom of Judah in the south. Jerusalem, which has served as the capital for all of Israel, uh, was actually in uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. And then in about 721 BC, the Assyrians came and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. So 721, the Assyrians come and conquer Israel. What they did then, and, and it depends on whose version of the account you want to believe, but uh, some some of the writers in the Old Testament understand that all of the Jewish people were either killed or sent away to Assyria. Uh, there's other places in the Old Testament where it sounds like perhaps some Jews were left behind, a remnant of Jews, perhaps even a large remnant. Uh, if you read Assyrian history, they seem to say that some of the Jews were left and then they brought in people from other nations to come and reside there. So whatever happens, either either the Jewish people are gone completely or the Jewish people are intermarried and therefore they, they interbreed with other people. And you don't have anymore this kind of, um, you know, uh, pure Jewish bloodline in the North. That doesn't exist by 721. And so with, with this, with this divided kingdom, the people who stayed in the Northern kingdom, the, the Assyrians mixed with Jews, mixed with whatever that, they, they became known as Samaritans. And they actually sent Israelites, sent a priest to go and preach to that group of people so that they would understand the faith of the Jewish people. 
And so they were called to follow after Yahweh, the one true God. But a lot of them, right, they'd intermarried or they were from other places. They had all these other gods already. And so instead of just like leaving these gods to follow Yahweh, the one true God, they added Yahweh to their pantheon of pre-existing gods. And so they had a very different theology that sometimes mixed in other religions, other gods than the Jews in the South. Now, Jewish people by the first century, not all of them, but lots of them already had a lot of resentfulness toward Gentiles. They believed that they were God's chosen people and that they were supposed to bless the whole world. And so here they are, and they're, they're supposed to be a blessing, but they've got, you know, they've been overtaken by Assyria in the north and eventually uh, Babylon in the south and eventually Greece and Rome. And so by the time Jesus shows up, this is a conquered people that is really resentful toward non-Jews. And they see Assyrians as the worst of the worst. They're non-Jews, they're Gentiles who claim Jewish heritage. They're posers. They're not us, but they, they want to be us. And so they, they, they don't like Gentiles anyway, but they really don't like Samaritans. And so uh, you see Samaria, you see uh, Judah. Now, if you needed to walk, if you needed to walk through this desert area, right? This is what it, what it would, would kind of look like. And this is actually a modern day today. This is, this is uh, uh, one of the cities that would have been really close by to where this is happening in Sychar. If you, if you travel from Galilee down to Judea, obviously it makes sense to go through Samaria. Like in the first century, if you were to pull up Google Maps and be like, how do I get to, to, to Judah? Like it would tell you go through Samaria. That's the fastest, that's the shorter, shortest route possible. You know, and then if you pull up Apple Maps, it would tell you to go first to the US and then back. Like it doesn't work as well. It's fine. So, so Galilee down, down to Judea, if you wanted to do that, like Samaria makes sense. But the Jews hated the Samaritans so much that that's not the route they usually took. Usually, if you had to travel from Galilee to Judea, you would go around Samaria and make this long route around it so that you would not have to interact with any Samaritan people, right? That's, that's the route. That's how they're going here. So when it says that Jesus had to, had to go through uh, Samaria, it's not what everybody else was doing. So why did he have to? He clearly could have chosen an alternative path, but he decided to. There, there was something, some prompting of the spirit or some decision he made. He has been very intentional about going through Samaria when other Jews would not have. He is showing up in a place that lots of Jews would just totally avoid. And now he's here and he's at this well. This well, by the way, they, they've believed since about the fourth century, they know what the well is. So I don't know, but like, it's, it's possible. There's a, a church that's built around it now. And there, these churches, by the way, have, it's, they've had a church around this well for uh, almost, almost 1500 years now. These churches have collapsed during wars. They've been blown up. They've been rebuilt like over and over and over again. So it's amazing that this thing is standing in any way, shape or form. Lots of times the church has been obliterated, but the well still stood or they repaired the well and just the well sat by itself. And so this is, uh, this is kind of what it looks like today. Probably if this is the actual well, this is what it looks like, but it's not what it would have looked like when Jesus is sitting next to it. When Jesus is sitting next to it, it was probably right on the outskirts of town. He's there during the hottest part of the day. So he's out in the desert next to this well during the hottest part of the day, not a time of day that people normally go to the well because they would go either early in the morning or later in the evening. And he's in Samaria, a place where he's supposed to be at odds with the people of that land. So that's the setup. I know it's kind of long, but it's important to understand the conversation that follows. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. So he's just there by himself. Disciples have all gone off to buy food. 
Uh, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then the text, like it says this in the Bible, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans, right? So this is not just a thing I'm making up. I'm just giving you some backstory. This was the situation. She was shocked that he was talking to her at all. What are you, you going to ask me for a drink of water for? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. We don't speak to each other. You know how this is. All right. Well, Jesus answered her. <laughs> this, by the way, a lot of our challenge with, I think, reading through the New Testament and the stories of Jesus is we know how the story ends and we know who Jesus is. And so when we read the stories, we're like, Jesus is the hero of the story in our minds. And we're thinking like, yeah, she should respect Jesus. She doesn't know who Jesus is. So try to think through what, what this encounter would be like if you were in the shoes of the woman and you were having a conversation with a man you did not know at all. And not only that, but you're already suspicious of him. And so just try to imagine what this encounter is like. So Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So like, oh, I didn't realize you were such a big deal. Sorry, sorry to make that mistake. Uh, who are you again? Just imagine it this way. Imagine that you were going to the water well of our towns today, Starbucks. Okay, so you, so you, so you go to Starbucks and you're in line, you know, for, for, for your no foam, two pump, half calf, vanilla latte, whatever. And, and, and you're, you're, you're working your way up and a guy taps you on the shoulder behind you and he's like, hey, you mind buying me a drink real fast? And you're like, I, and not only that, he's wearing a Giants jersey, okay? Like, like, okay. So you're like, hey, okay, first of all, I'm a Dodgers fan. We do not associate, okay? Like, it's weird that you even tap me on the shoulder to have this conversation. Secondly, like, who are you? Like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to get you a Starbucks drink. You're being kind of weird. And then imagine if you were thinking he's being kind of weird. And then he said, if you knew who you were talking to, you would have asked me for a drink and I would have given you a latte that goes on for eternity. You'd have kind of probably turned and kind of, okay, all right, look, I'm just, just going to leave that right there. There's really no reason to engage here. No good can possibly come out of that. That's the kind of conversation they're having right now. Can you imagine how weird that would be? I think Jesus sometimes, because he kind of knows, he, he seems to always know more than the people around him. I just think he has fun sometimes. He's like, how can I make her as uncomfortable as possible before we get to the meat of the conversation? All right, like if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So what do you even say to somebody when they say that to her? So she tries to like play along, but you can tell she's reaching a little bit. Sir, woman said, very respectful. Uh, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. In other words, like you're gonna offer me water. You don't have anything to actually reach into the well. It's too deep, man. You can't just like cup your hand down and like offer me water. And if you did, it'd be creepy for me to drink out of your hand. Okay, so like this is not happening. Like you need to let this go. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? What she doesn't know is that Jesus answer to that would have been yes. Are you, are you greater than our father, Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock, right? It's Jacob's well, because in, in Hebrew history, there was a man named Jacob, uh, he had a brother named Esau. Jacob founded this well. This is one of the patriarchs of the Jewish faith. This is a big deal for them. You think you're better than Jacob? Like he gave us this well. What are you talking about? You are, you are talking in riddles. You're being weird. Jesus answered, it doesn't get better here, by the way. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water, you know, this water here will be thirsty again. Now we understand that concept. We have lots of sayings in American life around things like that, right? Like um, if you, if you uh, uh, give a man a fish, right? He can eat for a day, but you teach a man to fish, he can eat for his entire life. Or uh, build a man a fire, he can be warm for a night, but set a man on fire and he can be warm for the rest of his life. Set a man, okay. So... <laughs> So we have different, I know some of you are still working that out. It's fine. We put this on YouTube later. You can rewatch. All right. So, um, 
So he said, look, if you drink from this water here, like it'll quench your thirst, but then you'll be thirsty again, right? Like it's, it's not going to quench your thirst forever, but whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. It's unclear to me whether she actually thinks he has this water and would like to get some, or if she thinks he's insane and is trying to shut him up. Like, okay, you're talking a big game. You have water that never runs out. Fantastic. Just, I guess, give it to me. You know, can we just, just give me the water. Give me the eternal water. It's fine. And then you can go away and then we can be like, no, let's come here. That'd be great. I don't know for sure if she believes this guy at all, but to her credit, she hangs in there. She doesn't run away. And she says, okay, if, if you have that, show me. If you really have that kind of water, let me have it. Let me have it. All right. So he told her, this is so weird. Go call your husband and come back. Well, that feels a little offensive, Jesus. Like I can't carry water by myself. I have to get my husband or something. Like why are you asking? Now we're going to find out why he says this. Cause he has a very, a very uh, good reason for it. When I read this, I think of, I used to work at Best Buy. I worked, uh, we lived in Chicago. I was going to seminary. My wife is going to uh, finishing up university. And uh, I worked, I worked at Best Buy there. And uh, I sold high end televisions and audio equipment all day long. I was one of the top salesmen uh, in that region and, and really enjoyed it. I, I love high end televisions and audio equipment. I love that stuff. The irony being, by the way, um, if you work at Best by selling it, you actually don't make enough money to afford it. So, um, so I, I would just come every day and just be surrounded by awesome stuff. And then I'd go home to my, you know, 27 inch, like tube TV. It was great. It was great, but I knew all about it. And I, I, I was good at selling because I would help people find the solution to the problem that they had, right? You don't try to just sell everybody the most expensive thing. You try to figure out what, what are they actually, what problem are they trying to solve for? It's a small space. It's a big space. They want the best. Do they want the, you know, the, 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 the best deal? What do they want? And so, um, I would shortcut conversations fairly quickly. And I remember a woman came in one day and she was a secret shopper. And I didn't know that she was a secret shopper because well, it's a secret. And so she was supposed to have an interaction with a sales associate, get, get their name and then go back home and write a report. And she got paid like, I don't know, 20 bucks for that or something. So, so she did that, but I didn't know. So she walks in and she says, Hey, I'm looking for a television. I said, oh, great. We have lots of TV. So I would start asking my questions, right? Like where in the house are you going to put it? And I, I just asked a few questions and she just, because she's not really looking for a television, hadn't thought of her story. And she was just like, oh, I, we have a room uh, that we'd like to put the TV in. Oh, are you looking for something big or small? Like a TV would be great. Uh, okay. Um, and, then, and then she said, you know what? So I, I started showing her some options. Like we have them in these sizes, but we also have something on here. Were you looking for like, you know, I'm just, I'm just doing my best here. And she finally says, you know what? It's a big, it's a big purchasing decision. I, I should probably have my husband come back with me anyway um, so that we can talk about it together. And I was like, that makes total sense. Like a big purchase, if you're looking for t- to purchase something big, like it's always great for, you know, spouses to agree that that's a good idea together. So that's great. Like, why don't you uh, go chat with him about it a bit? Two of you can come back. I'd be happy. Here's my business card. I'd be happy to help you. All right. So she goes home, writes up her report. My manager comes to me a couple of days later and he was like, Josh, a secret shopper came in a couple of days ago. Did you tell a woman that you would sell her a TV if she would go home and get her husband first? And I was like, no, that's, well, I guess technically I did, but that's her fault. Like she didn't, you know, like it was this, oh, I felt really, really embarrassed. But then I get to a passage like this in John four sixteen, and it looks like Jesus is doing exactly that with this woman, right? She's like, give me the water. I'll go ahead and take it. I'll take you up on the door. And he's like, okay, go get your husband first. It's weird until you find out why he told her that. Next verse. 
I have no husband, she replied. Uh huh, uh huh. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. So, what you've just said is quite true. Now, this is such an interesting exchange because she doesn't technically lie to him, but she's a little bit misleading. And instead of like, you know, coming down on her or even making a moral judgment of her, he chooses not to do that. You're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five, actually. And the man you're living with now is, is not your husband, which, which, you know, she would have been with her religious understanding, shamed that that was the case. In fact, why is this woman going to the well right outside of town in the hottest part of the day when no one else would have been going. Why is she doing that? A number of commentators believe it's because this woman was living a shamed life that because she'd had so many husbands, and we don't know the reason for that. It could have been that she was a, a hard person to live with and she you know, had, had had her husband send her away. That's in the first century, women were seen as property by, by the legal structures of the day. And so men would be the ones to offer the certificate of divorce. Maybe she was a hard person to live with and she'd gotten divorced a lot because men had sent her away. Maybe, maybe though she had lived with five horrible men and they had just, you know, they, maybe they had mistreated her. Maybe they had uh, cheated on her. Maybe, we, we just really don't know. We're not going to make a moral judgment about that. Jesus doesn't. And I don't think we have enough information to do that. But you can imagine if someone had had five husbands that in a day when that was not f- smiled upon, that she would be the talk of the town and not in a good way. And now she's living with a man who's not her husband. And again, that is just not acceptable in the first century in this area at all. So it's likely that she was a bit of an outcast kick to the curb, the fringes of society. Why else is she going to this well at the hottest part of the day when nobody else is there? Is it because she doesn't want to face anyone else? Is it because she doesn't want to experience the trauma of exposing her life to anyone else because she's seen how they respond to her, seen how they react? We don't know for sure. But it seems possible, likely even. And he's, he's, he just tells her like, look, here's a mirror, right? That, like I'm holding it up for you to see yourself. You've had five husbands. The person that you're living with now is not your husband. Now, I don't know how Jesus knew this. Uh, Jesus is fully human, but also fully God. So it's possible he just had the knowledge because he's also fully God. Or maybe, maybe he's sitting at the well and this woman is walking up from the distance and maybe a local townsperson walked by and said, oh, careful, you don't want to be our sixth, you know, and just walks away. I have no idea, but Jesus knows this. And this, this blows her mind. She actually responds. She says this, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So here's what she does. She says he's a prophet because he knows this about her. And then she immediately changes the subject. (laughs) Oh, I can see that you're a prophet. I'd like to not talk about my marriage history though. So let's talk theology. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that this place that we must worship is in Jerusalem. Can we talk about that? I'm much more comfortable talking about that. So Jesus replies, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Now, this, again, it's a strange statement if you don't know some of what's going on here. This is probably the, the highest statement that Jesus makes about the Jewish people in all of the Gospels. But when he says that salvation is from the Jews, he means several things about by that. For, for instance, 
Salvation really comes through Jesus, and Jesus is a Jew, born of Jewish lineage after this long Jewish history and story. And so salvation is from Jesus, and therefore salvation is from his people, the Jewish people. But also it was the Jews that God set aside and was going to bless the whole world through them. And so he had given them Moses and the prophets and Father Abraham and, like, and Jacob, right? Whose well this is named, uh, whose, whose uh, name is, is applied to this well. Like all of these things came from the Jewish people. And so the Samaritans, he said, like, you worship what you do not know. In other words, like how you understand things is not accurate. It's not right. But Jews, we worship what we do know for salvation is from us. Like we, we have held this story, but it doesn't stop there. He says, yet a time is coming and has now come. It's in the future. It's also now. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. All right, we're going to unpack this for just a moment. He's basically saying to her, look, like this theological debate we've had about what mountain we'll worship God on. It doesn't matter. I'm going to sidestep that. Like, like neither is basically the answer because we're all going to worship God and we're going to do it in spirit and in truth. And long before we had a word in the church called Trinity, where we talked about God as father and spirit and son. Jesus here is talking about the triune nature of who God is. And he does this for the first time to this woman. In the chapter before this, he has a conversation with a religious teacher named Nicodemus. This is a man who would have been highly esteemed by the Jewish people. Now he's meeting with what his fellow Jews would have thought is the lowliest of the low. He is meeting with a Samaritan woman who's living an immoral life. That's the way that everybody else sees this, this interaction. This is a Samaritan woman living an immoral life. Samaritans are the worst of the worst. You've probably heard of Samaritan before, like the good Samaritan. That's from a story that Jesus tells later where a Samaritan is the hero of the story. Jesus was always like poking at all of his fellow children. He was always like trying to subvert their expectations and challenge them, challenge their thinking. He was not comfortable to be around. And now he's talking to this Samaritan woman who's living an immoral life. Like, what, what are you doing? And not only is he talking to her, he's revealing to her things about God. Anytime that the New Testament talks about spirit, it uses, oftentimes when it uses a water metaphor to talk about God as living water, it's referring to the spirit. And so we, they're at a well and he's talking about the spirit. Jesus is always talking about the truth, how he is the way, the truth and the life. He actually stands before Pontius Pilate and says that if people want to know what the truth is, they would follow him. He's, he's, not, he's not a king in the way that Pilate would think he is, but, but everyone who is interested in the truth follows after Jesus. That's what his, and the father, father, spirit, son, we see this right. It's the really first time Jesus unpacks it and he unpacks it to a Samaritan woman living an immoral life. See, Jesus did not just come to save and help the religious leaders. He came to save and to help the lowliest of the low, the highest of the high, and everyone in between. This is part of the beauty, by the way, of Christianity. It's unlike every other way of seeing the world. Jesus unpacks all of this to a woman who, to to his fellow Jews, would not have deserved hearing it. The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ. I know that there's going to be a savior. I know that they're coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Like I, I've, I've heard the stories. I understand what the prophet said. There's going to be a Messiah. Messiah is going to come and free us. And we're not going to be underneath the Roman rule anymore. I know that that's coming. And when he comes, he'll explain it. In other words, Jesus, you're confusing. This whole conversation has been weird. Thanks for the lesson, I guess. I appreciate it about the water and the living and the mountain. Yep. Thanks. We're all great. You knew stuff about me. That was weird. But look, 
I'm really waiting to, to kind of meet this Messiah at some point, maybe, or our people will. And then he'll explain everything. And then Jesus declares, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is a big deal. And I want us to understand why it's a big deal. Moses in Exodus chapters three and chapter four has this argument with God. His, the Israelites have been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And God comes to Moses and he says like, hey, I need you to go to, to the Pharaoh. I need you to tell him to let my people go. And so they have this conversation. Moses was like, I don't really want to do that. Um, I think I'd be terrible at that. I, I don't speak very well. Like I, you really should get my brother to that. Anybody, I'm basic. I'm having a good life. Like things are going pretty, can I please not do this? And, and, and every excuse that Moses throws out there, God just bats it down like one after the other. And finally, he's like, look, who am I even going to tell them sent me, right? Like, I'm just going to show up. Like, what is your name? And God says, tell them that I am has sent you. This is like, that's, that's a weird name. Like, can I just call you Carl or Stanley? Like, can I? No, 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 Moses. What you need to understand is, as I was, I am, and I forevermore will be. I am the one through who all space and time flow and come out of. I was before, I will be after. I am. Tell them I am sent you. And you can be because I am. So when Jesus says to this woman, I am he. He is calling forth language that she would have been familiar with. He is calling himself the name that God gave to Moses for himself. I am. He does this multiple times throughout the book of John, but the first person he says it to is a Samaritan woman living an immoral life. I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. Like, it's, just, it's just so scandalous to them in their culture. Like Jesus talking to a woman by himself <gasps> and they show, they show up and they see this, but they don't say, but no one asks him, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Why? They trust him. Like it's weird, but they trust him. They, they know that he's not doing anything that's out of bounds, but they're just, they're trying to figure out what's going on here. And then leaving her water jar. So this is the whole reason that she, she came to the well, right? So she just drops what she was doing, basically. The woman went back to her town and she said to the people, right? These are the people, by the way, that she's probably trying to avoid. The people who she feels have thrown her out of the, the cool club. Like, I don't get to hang out with them. That's why I'm out here at this well in the middle of the day by myself. And she drops what she's doing. She runs to town and she goes in just a moment from a Samaritan woman who's living an immoral life to one of the first evangelists in the Bible. She goes to tell the people of her town about the good news that the Messiah Jesus has come. I am is here. She went back to her town. She said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of town and they made their way toward him. I love this. I love, by the way, there was this uh, uh, commentator, um, Ephraim, Ephraim uh, the Syrian, 303, 303 AD is when he wrote this. This is, this is old. She said, he says about her, first she caught sight of a thirsty man, then a Jew, then a rabbi, afterwards a prophet, last of all the Messiah. She tried to get the better of the thirsty man. She showed her dislike of the Jew. She heckled the rabbi. She was swept off her feet by the prophet and she adored the Christ. All this happens, by the way, in like seven minutes. <laughs> It's so fast. 
this interaction was way quicker than it took for me to explain this interaction. <laughs> so it, it's, it's just, it happened like a life can be transformed that quickly. She runs into town. She becomes the first evangelist. She tells everybody everything that she knows. She, like, she adores this person now. They come out and we see this. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, right? Because she had the courage to connect them with Jesus. And he told me everything I ever did when, you know, when, he, when they said that, like they were, they were interested. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days. Jesus stayed two days in a Samaritan village. Again, unheard of in the first century for a Jewish rabbi to do that. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the one, we no longer believe just because of what you said, right? We started with that. That was our starting place. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. This woman did not grasp everything there was to grasp about Jesus. She didn't try to go to them and help them understand their systematic theology. She didn't walk them through the four spiritual laws or the Roman road to salvation. She just said, I met Jesus. I think he's the Messiah. You need to meet Jesus too. She connected them to Jesus and Jesus did the rest. That's what evangelism is. See, a lot of times we're afraid to talk to anybody about our faith because we think we have to like have all these really smart arguments and just overcome, overwhelm their information with our information. We have to win the debate. Most people aren't looking for a debate. They're looking for a friend. They're looking for someone who cares enough about them to say, I had this incredible experience. It changed my life. I want to tell you about how Jesus changed me. And then we've got to trust that if we can connect them to Jesus, Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit, like just might change them as well. That's the story that this woman who was haunted by her past had been an outcast because of things that either she had done or had been done for her. And the way that she was living right now, it was her past and her present. She's on the fringes of society. And then she has an encounter with Jesus and everything changes. And she not only has a life that's renewed, but through her renewal, others are renewed as well. And she moves from being a Samaritan woman who's living an immoral life to being one of the first evangelists. It's a remarkable story. I think it's remarkable because I think it's true that as we return to like Dickens, right? I think it's true that we are all haunted by the ghosts of our past. We are. And... And if we were to talk to someone and say like, man, I, I'm having a hard time letting this go. I'm having a hard time like getting free, but I think about it all the time. They would tell us, well, you just need to forgive yourself and you need to move on. You forgive yourself. You need to walk for you. Stop thinking about it. You need to forgive yourself. Stop telling you how to move on. That's what you need to do. It's not that that's bad advice. It's that it's incomplete advice. The, the reality is we weren't built to forgive ourselves. We forgive ourselves all we want to, but honestly, if, 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 we're, if we're being sincere, it's not enough. It's good. It needs to happen, but it's not enough. We'll keep returning to it and, and we'll, we'll feel guilt and shame over it our entire lives if we just try to forgive ourselves. My son, Jack, is eight years old now. Uh, he was born and then 18 months in, he got diagnosed with autism. And we... We weren't expecting that. And whatever we thought life was going to look like, we knew that it was going to be very different now. So he started working with, um, and I'm so thankful for them. He started working with a number of therapists at the state of Pennsylvania. That's where we were living at the time. Uh, yeah, we weren't living here. And then Pennsylvania therapists just visited us. We, d- we didn't have that kind of money. So um, 
So we're living in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania therapists would come to our house a couple days a week and they would work with him for a few hours, but that wasn't really nearly enough time to work with him. And so my, my wife, my wife, Emily, who's just amazing, she, she learned all the techniques along with them. And she worked with him every single day. And so the therapist would come and she would learn more and she would ask questions. She would just work with him. And she was still, she was working as a nurse in a hospital at the time as well. I was pastoring in church. Like we, you know, it's not like she was unbusy. She just made it happen. She made it work. My, my, she's incredible. And what happened is, is this nonverbal 18 month old that we were afraid may never have words his entire life was, was what we felt like over the next several months started to gain a little bit of a vocabulary. It was still very hard to understand him. We started to gain a little bit of vocabulary to where by about the, by the time he was about 24 months, so about two years, my wife was like, Hey, do we, do we want to have another baby? And I was like, I mean, definitely not. No, we, we don't want to have another baby, right? Like the, we have the one and he's autistic and I don't know how much time this is going to take from us. Like that, that feels scary to add another child to the mix. But you know, when we first got married, she'd wanted to have four kids. And over the years I had, you know, I had worked that and whittled it down to three kids. So that was good. And then, um, and then as we kept on, you know, we, we had an autistic child and she was like, okay, so maybe what if we just had two? And I was like, I, I don't know. Like, can we even handle two? Like, you know, a lot, a lot of couples, you talk to them and, and one of the, the spouses is really good at like organization and they kind of keep the family calendar and they pay the bills and the other, the other person is really nice. And so those, they, <laughs> they make a great, they make a great pairing, you know? And, and the problem that Emily and I had is like, neither of us, neither of us are good at like organization, keeping a calendar, showing up on time. Like none of that stuff is in our wheelhouse. Like, I think, I, like, I, I feel like we, we're just, we just can't make this stuff work sometimes because like, we're, we're just not good at it. Maybe we just can't do this. You know, I started to think at some point in our marriage, like, man, this, we are not good at most things together. Like we got to figure this out. I'm starting to think like maybe the Mormons are onto something. If we could add a third spouse, like (laughs) who was really organized, you know, they could live in a separate room like that was, you know, we decided to stay Protestant. It's fine. So we, (laughs) we just, we just downloaded more calendar apps. It was good. So we, we figured out ways to organize ourselves, but it's hard. And I'm just wondering, like, okay, we already have a child with autism and like, it's taking everything we can to help him through this. Are, are we good enough from an organizational perspective to add a, a second child to this family? I'm just not sure that we are. And so we talked about it for a while and I had, I was making some great points. But she looked at me with tears in her eyes and she said, I really want a second child. Okay. So we started trying and I was like, well, maybe at least it'll take a year or two so that, you know, we'll have some more time. And like, yeah. So three weeks later she was pregnant because <clears throat> I'm good. I don't know. I'm going to stay. So <laughs> I didn't even say that first hour and we'll cut it out a second. That probably shouldn't go on YouTube. It's fine. So, so we, <laughs> so she's pregnant and she tells me like, Oh, I'm pregnant. And, and I really want, you know, the first time when you had her first child, she told me she was pregnant. It was like, oh, we're both like excited. I was just great. The second time though, she told me she was pregnant. I, I, I knew I had to be excited on my face, but it, like I was really inside. I was having a really hard time being excited. I was just thinking like, how are we going to do this? And so then she had a really hard pregnancy because that's the kind of pregnancies that Emily has. Like they're just hard. And she was told by people like, oh, after three months, it'll get better. After six months, it'll get better. It'll definitely be better than the last week. It's, it was just never better. You know, some people get pregnant. My wife gets infected with a baby. Like it just, she just feels sick and exhausted the whole time. And so as she would, you know, she, she was still working at the hospital some and like, so, and then she'd be 
she'd be nauseous and she has to like lay down and I'd have to take care of Jack. And like, all that's fair. It's absolutely fair that I, of course I would do that. I'm not the one who's infected with a baby. And yet like what I was struggling with was I was feeling increasingly as she was, you know, further along, like I was feeling like a single parent almost. I'm not even saying that's fair. Just saying it's how it kind of felt. So I was getting kind of resentful of the situation. And then like uh day comes and, and she, she gives birth to our second son. He's healthy. And we're really excited about that. His name is William. And and our parents are there and that's good. But like, like we get home and then we have these two kids and like I, Jack needs a lot of attention. And so I'm like, okay, maybe like we just, we just play man on man defense here. Right. And like, I, I go with Jack and like you take Will cause Will's always wanting milk and I'm like, plum out of milk. So like, if I could, if I could help Jack, maybe that would be my contribution. So I just, I didn't say that out loud. I just kind of thought like, I'll just try to help Jack. What she was feeling is like, I don't have enough interest in this second child. And she may have been right about that. Honestly, like, I was still struggling with the idea that we were going to like make this work. Like it was really, really hard. And so what happened over the first like three, four, five months of our second child being alive is that Emily and I, the love of my life, the person I care about more than any other human on the planet, we just started separating. And I started being resentful that this child that ended our family and disrupted things so much. And now like what I felt like I needed from her, I couldn't get anymore. And she was resentful that I wasn't living up to the expectations that she had thought and the things that I would do and the ways that I would help out. And we were, we were just, we were just falling apart. And we had to like hit a place where we had to just talk it out. And what we determined is that, in different ways, both of us had just been wrestling with our own like selfishness and expectations. And then those not being met, right? They're unmet expectations when you have them in your head, but you never say them out loud and then your spouse doesn't know about them. And then you get mad at them for not living up to the thing you never even told them you, they, that you're judging them, grading them on. We were both doing that in very different ways. So in some ways, we, we both had ideas about each other that we should be behaving in ways that we thought parents were supposed to act since we'd been kids. Like we, they weren't realistic. But we just finally had to get to a place where we could talk about that. I had to own my own selfishness. And it's easier to call it selfishness than it is sin. But what it was, was sin. A human propensity to break things in relationships and look inward instead of outward. That's what we're talking about here. And now, when we talk about those several first months after William was born, it's like a weight on my chest to think about it because my head goes back there. My guess is that you have something in your life, a relationship that you helped fracture, an addiction that you're still struggling with, an anger that still lives inside of you that you can't quite get control of, a jealousy that rears its ugly head in ways that you wish it didn't. My guess is you have something that when it gets brought up, when it gets talked about, when you think of it inside your head, there is just a shame and a guilt that piles on. Like you, you have a hard time forgiving yourself for it. And here's the reality. We weren't built to forgive ourselves. We hold on to things. That's what we do. The miracle of Christmas is that the ghosts of our past don't get to haunt us anymore because the savior of the world came to take away our guilt and our shame and give us the one thing we couldn't really fully give ourselves, actual, 
real, tangible forgiveness. And that's what he offers this woman in embracing her, even though her past is one that is ugly and marred and that other people judge her over. He offers forgiveness. He offers her transformation. We need forgiveness and Jesus forgives. It's the miracle of Christmas. Here's the other thing we need to recognize. This is just, this is really important because it's the flip side. And it's the way that we are sometimes unhelpful to other people as they wrestle with their own past and their own sin, okay? Like sometimes we haunt others. Someone did something and you keep bringing it up. Someone did something wrong and you keep throwing it in their face. Why do you do that? Well, we don't bring it up for redemption. We don't usually bring it up because we just want what's best for them. We don't usually bring it up like, oh, we'll talk about it. I'll bring it up for the 49th time this week and then you'll feel better. Like that's not usually what we're doing there. No, we don't bring it up for redemption. We bring it up for revenge. If we're honest, it feels good to throw it in their face. It feels good because like, oh, like they can see, see that they make mistakes. When I make mistakes, my mistakes aren't as big because look at their mistake. Here's your mistake. Do you remember your mistake? Like we do that sometimes. We sometimes put ourselves in the role of the ghost. Like we're just going to haunt you and we're going to remind you and we're going to bring it up when it's convenient for us and when it's inconvenient for you. We are never going to let you forget what you did. And sometimes we never apologize for what we did and they can't heal themselves of that wound because they've never seen one ounce of sorrow in us over it. Sometimes it's on us. And sometimes they've just figured out that they can use that thing that happened as a cudgel to beat us over the head with any time it's handy. What God offers is forgiveness. And what God invites us to is to forgive others. Both things are true. In a couple of weeks, actually, we're going to talk a lot more about Christmas and forgiveness. So that's coming up because there's an amazing section of the Christmas Carol story where that, that gets delved into. But I couldn't let today go without bringing it up and reminding us that we are called to be forgiven which is amazing. And we are called to forgive others. This Christmas season, the opportunity we have is to allow the ghosts of Christmas past to exit and to embrace the future, the glorious future that God has for us. And the only reason then to dwell upon the past is not to feel guilt and shame. If you've taken that to God, he's forgiven you for it already. You need to let it go and recognize the amazing forgiveness that God has in store for you. So then the only reason to dwell on it isn't for guilt and shame. The only reason to dwell on it is to learn from it and to not enter into behavior that looks like that ever again. That's the Christmas miracle. That's the Christmas Carol. Father, thank you for their time together today. Thank you for Jesus. And thank you for his willingness to have weird, funky, uncomfortable, well-side conversations with Samaritan women who were leading a moral life. That's our savior. (laughs) That's the one who's changed everything. That's the one who kept subverting expectations and turning reality upside down and poking and prodding the religious leaders of his day. Like that's the guy. And I pray God that this irreverent, weird conversation that he has with this woman that changes her life would change ours too. Father, this Christmas season, may we not be haunted by the ghosts of our past, but may we walk away from them and toward you to the glorious future you have for us. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Would you stand together with us as we worship this morning? Thank you for listening to the Inland Hills Church Weekly Messages podcast. To learn more about Inland Hills, including info about our church ministries and ways to get involved, visit InlandHills.com. 
To stay up to date with our weekly messages, make sure you subscribe and leave a review so others can find our messages of hope and encouragement. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next week.